0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts.
1: What is wrong with me? It's a question I'm hearing a lot these days from my family and friends. And honestly, I've asked it myself. Year two of this pandemic, many of us seem to be stuck in a kind of emotional, psychological inertia. We're worn out. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. I wanted to find out more about this uh, feeling a lot of us have, what it can do to us, what we can do about it, and when we should be concerned enough to get professional help. So I called Dr. Melissa Hunt. She's a psychologist and associate director of clinical training in the psychology department at Penn. Dr. Hunt, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. So what is wrong with us? Why are so many of us just feeling Unmotivated, just blah?
0: Absolutely. That's a great question. And I will admit it, that I've experienced some of that myself over the last year and a half or so. So the first thing I want to do is distinguish between two kinds of feelings that can lead to that blah feeling one is burnout, and the other is depression. And here's a very simple way of knowing the difference burnout kind of results in, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this thing that I'm required to do, whether it's another Zoom meeting or, you know, trying to slog into work or, you know, being at work with only half staff or being at work and being overwhelmed. Burnout is really oftentimes related to specific burdens and challenges and tasks that could be, you know, part of your paid employment or could just be part of sort of life at large. Depression is a little bit more than that. Depression often leads to something called anhedonia. That's the technical name for the symptom. And what anhedonia means is that things just aren't giving you pleasure. You just don't feel motivated. But often it's that you don't feel motivated to do anything. Even things that would normally give you pleasure, like listening to a great song or watching a really fun movie or hanging out with friends and family or eating a great meal, you know, the meal just tastes like sawdust. Just nothing interests you or gives you pleasure or motivates you. And it's a really important difference because oftentimes the solution to burnout is to take a break. (laughs) Possibly can. It's to look at all right, how many balls do I have in the air? Can I put a few of them down? Right. And the red flags for burnout tend to be things like dropping the ball on something, you know, double booking yourself or forgetting an important meeting or an appointment or making a mistake at work or just even being more physically clumsy or more accident prone or more short tempered. All of those things are kind of red flags for burnout. And generally speaking, the solution is, if you possibly can, find a way to get some help, find a way to take a break, find a way to put some of those balls and responsibilities down. With depression, depression is really kind of a whole body, whole brain phenomenon. And de- Most people think of depression as feeling sad, and that can be one of the symptoms of depression but it actually doesn't need to be. You can get a diagnosis of depression without feeling sad. If you're feeling really, really unmotivated and disconnected and just not getting pleasure from things and you have an array of a few other symptoms. So maybe you're having a lot of difficulty sleeping, particularly not just having trouble getting to sleep. Lots of things can cause that too much caffeine, a little bit of anxiety ruminating about a, you know, Meeting you had at work today or something stressful that's coming up tomorrow. But sleep problems where you wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep or where you wake up early in the morning and you're still tired, but you can't get back to sleep. Those are real red flags. Overarching fatigue, difficulty concentrating, feeling like you're not a worthwhile human being, really questioning your worth. And, you know, obviously at its worst and most severe, actually thinking that, you know, maybe it would be easier if you just weren't here. So if anyone is experiencing that kind of collection of symptoms, then I really do suggest getting in touch with your doctor. Lots of doctors have very effective brief screening tools that they can do with you. And there are lots and lots of really, really effective treatments for depression, including both cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy and various medications. So, If someone's really feeling a pervasive feeling of anhedonia and they just don't want to do anything and nothing is giving them pleasure, then I do suggest seeking professional help.
1: So we're all just collectively depressed? I think a lot of us are burned (laughs) out. I think a
0: lot of us are burned out. The pandemic has done several things simultaneously for lots of different people. And obviously this is somewhat variable across the socioeconomic spectrum, and it's variable across the kind of employment that you have. So folks who are still having to go into work, essential workers, healthcare workers, all of the folks who keep society running, who collect the trash and deliver the groceries, all those folks are feeling... Really, kind of overwhelmed by the burdens of showing up every day. And they've been in situations where they've had to put themselves at physical risk to help the rest of us manage and get by. Those of us who are in more white collar jobs where we can work remotely, we can work from home, you know, may have been in less physical risk, but we've also lost a lot of the things that make our jobs and our social lives enjoyable and fun, right? It's really hard to not be around your friends, to not be around your coworkers, just to have a, a, a cons for much of the pandemic, particularly before vaccines became widely available, just feeling like every time you went to the grocery store, you were kind of taking your life in your hands. That wears on you. That's exhausting. And there are certainly lots of other generations who have had to cope with dissimilar specific challenges, but similar kinds of situations. You know, I think about People in London during the Blitz in World War II, I mean, you know, it was dangerous to just go outside and go to the supermarket. And unfortunately, there are lots of parts of the world where that's still true that have nothing to do with the pandemic. So certainly those kinds of stressors and challenges can take a toll on people's resilience, on their energy. So there have both been extra burdens and strains, especially for people who have young kids at home, schools were closed. I am so grateful that my youngest is now 18. <laughs> it's really self directed that I didn't have to deal with that. So, what we've dealt with is both an increase in the stressors and the challenges and the burdens, while at the same time, we've all had a decrease in the opportunities for pleasure and joy and mastery and social support, all those things we used to take for granted. And that's been hard on a lot of people.
1: Well, and the thing is, you know, when you talk about stress and anxiety, they're different, but particularly with anxiety, a lot of times, right, that's from within or things we might be afraid of in the future. But we're facing, this is a real threat. I mean, this is not Mm -hmm. some imaginary enemy. This is year two. I mean, everybody's Mm -hmm. just exhausted. But I'm thinking when you talk about kind of healing and moving on, how do you do that when we're still in it? You know, we're still facing this.
0: So you've made what I think is a really important distinction between what are the threats and stressors and challenges that are just out there in the world that are real versus what's happening in our own head. How are we thinking about things? And I think it's really important to highlight that difference because we're in a very, very different phase of the pandemic now. If you've gotten yourself vaccinated, and especially if you've gotten yourself boosted, the risks of catching COVID are really very, 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 very low. That is to say, you're probably still going to catch it. At this point, I think we have to kind of come to a place of acceptance that most people are going to get COVID, even if they're vaccinated and boosted. But if you're vaccinated and boosted, the chances that you will have anything like a terribly serious illness are vanishingly low. So lots and lots of people are getting COVID. But if you're vaccinated and boosted, it's not dangerous. And that's where we need to begin to shift our thinking. So lots of folks who really hunkered down and isolated and said, I am willing to give up seeing people and going to restaurants and going to shows, and I just really want to stay safe. That might have made sense in March of 2020 or May of 2020. It doesn't really make sense anymore. And that's where we have to start working on those internal thought processes and not catastrophize and not distort and let go of some of the fear that may very well have been appropriate a year and a half ago. But again, if you're vaccinated and boosted, you really don't have to be afraid of anymore.
1: You mentioned hospital workers. I saw a nurse on the news the other night who said They are so burnt out. And she was saying to her colleagues, we're going to need therapy for the next decade just to deal with the trauma and everything we've been seeing. And so sometimes I think I think I absorb some of that. You know, if you're empathetic, I don't know. I think sometimes that can be a little contagious itself.
0: Well, I think you're pointing out something really important, which is that it's so incredibly important that we continue to support each other through this. It will be no surprise to any of, of our listeners that, you know, the tenor and the culture and the atmosphere in this country has become very, very divisive and very angry. And you're right. Healthcare workers are reporting a tremendous amount of burnout, but it's actually not even so much coming from COVID anymore. It's coming from family members being enraged, family members insisting on, unproven, dangerous treatments that really aren't effective. It's coming from patients being furious at doctors for not giving them the treatment that they think is going to be helpful to them, despite all the scientific evidence to the contrary. It's coming from things like just the other day when a, when a you know mobile vaccine unit, a, a very disturbed person came in and physically assaulted two of the, the healthcare workers who were working in this mobile clinic yelling at them that they were murderers for giving people vaccines. Now, that person may very well be mentally ill, but those ideas didn't come out of nowhere. Those ideas came from, you know, some of the things they've been hearing on the airwaves. So I think we have to really support each other. And I think it's really important that we think carefully about where we're getting our news from, and social media is not ever the place to get news. <laughs> Please, people, go to the source. Don't <laughs> trust what somebody flagged on Facebook. That's not the right way to get medical or scientific advice and news. So, really, sort of trusting and supporting the expertise of the people in the healthcare field, I think is incredibly important and would go a long way towards reducing the burnout and the trauma that those folks are experiencing.
1: You know, as you're as you're going through that, I'm thinking I'm getting exhausted uh, listening to it because it hits such a nerve. And I think that's the thing we feel like not only are we battling COVID, but we're battling misinformation, or we're battling Mm -hmm. friends, or battling relatives who have Mm -hmm. these crazy ideas that you just said that Mm -hmm. the vaccine itself is deadly. And then there's a sadness, you know, people arguing and saying crazy things about maybe public health care workers or, or, or mm-hmm. servants who you know are just out there to keep people safe And when I think about it, I think that I think is actually worse than the mm-hmm. virus itself. and unfortunately,
0: you know this is true of all of human history. you know every time there's been a major scientific advancement of some kind, there have always been strong forces at work objecting, vilifying, making fun of, and really accusing the scientists of, of somehow being on the side of evil. You know, that was, that was true in the time of Galileo. It was true in the, in the time of, of, of Jenner and Lister and, you know, the discovery of microbes and the you know, the initial discovery of vaccines. Unfortunately, this has always been true. And I think the real challenge for those of us who communicate directly with the public about these issues is to find a way to frame the message that people can hear, that feels values and morally consistent for them, um, that doesn't challenge their their fundamental value system too much, but that aligns with their value system. So just as as a very, very brief example... We haven't published this study yet, but some students of mine and I did a study at the University of Pennsylvania last year in which we were trying to figure out how to increase mask-wearing behavior. And most of the studies that had been done previously looked at, okay, well, what are the correlates of mask-wearing? What, what are the people like who tend to wear masks? Well, they're high in empathy. They're high in compassion. They really value sort of fairness and care of the other people in their community. And so those folks said, okay, well, let's try to increase empathy. Well, figuring out how to increase empathy is quite a challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's a, my first so, <laughs> so my students and I said, well, you know what? Why don't we do the opposite? Why don't we find out what the correlates are of, of non-compliance with wearing masks? And then let's try to develop an intervention that appeals to those values. And what we found was that among Penn students... No particular surprise. Folks who were politically more conservative, more aligned with the Republican Party tended to be much less likely to wear masks. And and we didn't just we didn't just ask people, gosh, how much do you wear a mask? We actually got self-report data on a daily basis over the course of a week across a number of different contexts, you know, to try to get a more accurate index of how much people were actually wearing masks or not. And then what we discovered was that those folks really valued respect for authority and in-group loyalty. And we thought, okay, fine. Let's come up with an intervention that appeals to those values. And so we were very fortunate to get a whole bunch of campus leaders. So things like the head of the Young Republicans group on campus, the president of a of a fraternity, the president of a sorority, one of the sports teams captains. You know, some of the folks who were on campus leaders who might be able to send this message that, hey, if you want to be loyal to your group, wear a mask. If you want to respect, you know, authority, we didn't have them say it exactly that way, obviously, but, you know, the attempt was to appeal. And so my students put together this absolutely fabulous little PSA with, you know, edited versions of all of this stuff. And by golly, we were able to move the needle on mask wearing that after watching that PSA, which interestingly, the more conservative students did rate as fairly authoritative, whereas the more liberal students said, yeah, no, I don't think that was that authoritative. Like, I'm I'm listening to Fauci and our chief wellness officer, right? I'm I'm not necessarily listening to the, 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 the head of the Young Republicans group on campus. But the conservative students really did find it authoritative and compelling. And by golly, they increased their mask wearing behavior. So I think one of the challenges here is to find a way to frame these messages in a way that feels values consistent rather than values inconsistent for these folks.
1: And that's hard. And I think a lot of people are so tired of trying to, whatever, convince others or Mm -hmm. get others to to help themselves stay healthy, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. I've Mm -hmm. heard so many people say, I'm done. You know, I think that it plays into all of this, but it is that feeling of, you know, we have COVID burnout, maybe on top of our depression. And Mm -hmm. that just leads to this impatience or, or the lack of, you know, you just don't want to do it anymore, because you just don't care.
0: Well, yeah, I I think there's, I think there's some truth to that. And, and I think that that's a real challenge for healthcare workers at this point, too. Yeah, you know, the, the, the Hippocratic Oath requires healthcare workers, you know, obviously, first to do no harm, but also to help everybody, no matter what. I think what has become very, very frustrating for a lot of healthcare workers is that the vast majority of people who are ill with COVID and in the hospital are unvaccinated. And it's hard to maintain your compassion and your empathy for somebody who made a conscious decision, perhaps on the basis of misinformation, but who still chose not to take an action that could have protected them and could have saved them from being in the hospital to begin with. Yeah. So that is one of the challenges. There's no question.
1: So I'm wondering this chronic stress, I mean, two years now, what does this do to us? You know, being under this level of stress for this long, what can it do to us?
0: That's a great question. And chronic stress definitely isn't good for our bodies. There's no question about that. Chronic stress leads to an inflammatory response throughout the entire body. You know, the brain responds to stress by releasing cortisol and adrenaline and all kinds of things. And, you know, that has an impact on just about every body system. It has an impact on the cardiovascular system. It has an impact on the digestive system. In particular, I see a lot of patients with chronic GI disorders and there's no question that there's been an uptick in things like gastroesophageal reflux, you know, heartburn, right? Mm-hmm. And irritable bowel syndrome. And a lot of people just experiencing kind of the, the impact of long-term chronic stress on all these different body systems. You know, the good news is, for the most part, that's really not dangerous. It's just uncomfortable.
1: Can stress like this lead to long-term mental health disorders?
0: No, I wouldn't say that this kind of stress can lead to long-term mental health disorders. It is certainly the case that for people with underlying genetic vulnerability or people who have a history of depression or social anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder, this kind of long-term stress can certainly exacerbate those conditions. But again, it doesn't have to if you you know, talk to a really good cognitive behavioral therapist and figure out how to think about things in a you know more more helpful and adaptive and realistic way and keep putting in exercises for yourself to make sure the envelope of your life doesn't get too small and you don't sort of give in to avoidance, you really can, you know, counteract most of the negative effects of this.
1: You know, I'm wondering if you can give us some insight. The CDC, you know, has said that certain mental disorders, including depression, make you more likely to get severely ill from COVID. Do we know why?
0: There is certainly an interaction between all of these systems and the immune system. So we do know that depression and stress can compromise fertility. They have impacts on the endocrine system and they have impacts on the immune system. So there's probably two things going on. One of which is that people may indeed be a little bit more vulnerable because of the direct Physiological effects of depression, one of which may be that, you know, oftentimes folks who are depressed aren't taking as good care of themselves. They're not eating well. They're not exercising, right? They're not getting enough sleep. And we certainly know that all of those things can compromise the immune system as well. The final issue is that people who are depressed or distressed also tend to experience things as worse than they necessarily are. So sometimes what we see is that in lots of different conditions, we know that what we call health-related quality of life, right? How much the disease or the situation is, is impacting the person often has more to do with the person's psychological adaptation than it does with disease severity itself.
1: So then let's wrap this up. By talking about some tools. How do we find joy? How do we kind of claw our way out of this or where we are right now? Just if you have quickly some tips for us or things we could do.
0: Well, I think one of the most important things is to stay physically active. I know people kind of roll their eyes when healthcare professionals say, hey, exercise is a good idea. But it really is. It's not only the fountain of youth, it's actually one of the best antidepressants.